Hello, and welcome back to A Soldier, A Sailor and A Scientist. This week we talk to Vic Martin, who is Deputy Director of DSTL's Futures Programme. Futures are a really exciting part of DSTL. Their scope is almost boundless, and we discuss subjects as diverse as traveller's diarrhoea, camouflage, offshore science labs, and DSTL's igloo immersive environment. If you're enjoying this series, make sure you like, subscribe, and leave us some feedback. It helps improve what we're doing, and it helps other people find Wavel Room podcasts. Oh, and of course, you can always head to wavelroom.com if you want to read our latest articles. Hope you enjoy the podcast. Vic, hello. Hi. Uh, can you explain what your role is at DSTL? So I am the Deputy Programme Manager on the Futures Programme. So the Futures Programme is all about looking for the new um, science and technology, the emerging ideas and concepts, and understanding the opportunities that they could bring to defence or the potential threats that they might cause for defence. So things that we need to think about for 10, 20 years' time that the areas that no one else in defence are looking at at the moment and no one else is thinking and how did you end up working at DSTL? Well, I've been in government for about four or five years in a different area of government, and I'd actually worked in emergency response and emergency planning for a long time. Um, and I really enjoyed sort of looking at how problems, how we were going to deal with problems when they came up, how we were going to deal with these disasters when they occurred. And that sort of took me down the route of innovation. I ended up moving to DSTL actually to work originally in DASA, which is our Defence and Security Accelerator which is all about emerging technologies and innovation. And then I've meandered my way through through DSTL until landing in the Futures Programme, where I've been for about 12 months now. So DASA, uh, we interviewed one of the heads of DASA uh, for a previous podcast series. You actually. did, I heard, um, yeah. It's a really interesting organisation. Yeah. But so I mean, what, what drew you here from DASA, then, considering all the, the stuff that was going through with that? Why, why move to Futures? Oh, I think I liked the idea of looking at things further beyond where we currently were. So um, again, with DASA, it's a lot of DASA is looking at problem spaces. So you're looking at particular problems that customers have. On the Futures program, we're looking beyond that. So we're not dealing with problem spaces. We are blue sky thinking. We, we really are sort of where will your imagination take you about what a new piece of science could eventually lead to and the, where could we go? That's exciting. So how... How, is, how do you bound that? So is there a, do you use time to say, you know, things that might come in in 10 years time and to 50 years time, or do you bound it as a, a new piece of science comes through and the kind of the individual length of, the length of a piece of science, that doesn't sound right, but uh, do you, do you know where that could end up? How, mm-hmm. how do you do it? So it really is, you've, you've kind of got it right with the second one, sort of how long a piece of science or technology may take. Um, when we talk about futures, we're looking, you know, we are looking at what we would call generation after generation after next. And that really varies across the board. So if we were looking at something to do with computing, that might only be five or six years away. Whereas if we're looking at something that's based on deep physics, we might be looking at 20 to 30 years away. So it really does vary. So futures is quite a big, unbounded space, if you like. I suppose, but that stuff, so the deep physics example, something 20 to 30 years away, there's a lot of things to go through en route to that, right? So you have to think about all of that as well. So the first one is our horizon scanning. So uh, we do these big horizon scanning pieces of work with an industry partner and they pull in all the quirky bits and pieces. And we use that to build a hypothesis. Um, So we'll find a, a new and emerging concept. We'll build our hypothesis around that. So 
we could use this eventually for that. Um, and as part of that, we'll then say, well, if that's going to work in a particular way, we might need to find um, we might need to find that we need to make batteries smaller, or it might be at the moment we don't understand the physics well enough, but we might do in the future. So we have to build a hypothesis which involves lots of smaller bits and pieces that will evolve over time. Um, the other bit that we do is we do a lot on understanding future operating environments, so the context about a piece of work. So do we need to look at if a policy change is required for, for something to, to come into um, to be deployed on the front line? Do we need to understand the legal implications? Do we need to understand the ethical implications and how the public might view a piece of, a piece of kit that we're developing? Um, and we need to, uh, we, and if we need to do that, we'll start doing that now when we get our decision makers to start thinking about that now. So it really is a sort of a mixed bag of we've got to come up with the idea and we've got to come up with all the supporting bits that'll make the idea work. And at the same time, we've got to understand the context of how we can get that through and how that will fit in our future operating world. So the, the legal, the ethical, the scientific, the technology, technology, the technology. <laughs> yeah. There we go. That's really broad. Yeah. So I mean, how big is this this team or is it lots of people with a very broad remit? How does that work? Yeah. So we probably have about 200 people working on the program on and off. And that's from across DSDL. So um, at DSDL, we're really lucky. We have world leading scientists with deep technical knowledge um, and we can pull in those people just for snippets of their time. So that's why we have so many people working across the program. Fair enough. So they just you bring in the right experts for that bit that you need to work on. Absolutely. And we also do a lot of work with industry and academia. So um, particularly for some of the newer concepts that are emerging, we may not have in-house specialism. So then we'll go out to industry or we'll go out to universities to try and find that specialism. So then we can draw that information in and incorporate that into our planning. It's, it's so broad, <laughs> which is, which is, I think, I can't think of anywhere else that would do this. Yeah. Right? So that must be quite an exciting thing to be part of. Really, yeah. really exciting. Because a commercial industry, they've got their things that they've got to hit, so their research is going to be very directed. This is, I mean, I'm imagining a bunch of you sat around the table thinking about stuff that might happen. <laughs> is that is that accurate? or is? It's not far off. We do have teams that are sat there just thinking about what could happen. And um, we're really lucky in defence that we are absolutely allowed to try new things and it's okay if it fails. Um, so we could look at a hundred different topics and if only five of them turn out to be useful and the other 95 don't go anywhere, that's okay. And we have the freedom to do that. And you're absolutely right. You're not going to get that in private industry. I like that. Um, I mean, things not being useful, that is useful in itself, isn't it? Absolutely. Every time something doesn't work the way we think it's going to, we learn from that. So that's really helpful. I learned a phrase, uh, not even wrong is a, an insult for a scientist. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, cool. So that one, it's so useless you can't even prove that it doesn't work. Is yeah. that essentially <laughs> good? Fair enough. Um, what's the igloo? So the igloo is a fully immersive environment that you can use for working in a different way. So we recently acquired three igloos of different sizes. Uh, we've got a small one, which is quite portable. We've got a large one, which is designed to be sort of fixed in place. And then we've got a medium sized one for both. We're looking to see if we can use it to translate futures to an audience in a different way. So at the moment, a lot of 
Um, a lot of the MOD traditionally, if they're talking about research, it tends to go into a report which is sent off and they, you know, deep technical reports aren't particularly fun to read and they're not accessible to a lot of people. And a lot of people just don't have time. So one of the things we're doing on the Futures programme is looking at how we can translate futures and make it more accessible for people. So the Igloo is one example where we're looking at. So rather than sending a technical report about a new piece of technology and why a decision maker should care about it, we can bring them down, we can put them in the Igloo, we can give them a 360 degree vision of what we're thinking with supporting sound, even supporting smell to create an environment to really help people understand what we're talking. So, I mean, it sounds like an effort to create this thing. Is that because you found there was a gap, a, a real gap in getting people to understand? Has it been useful having the... Yeah, I definitely think it's been useful. Um, it's something that we're really promoting across the rest of DSTL to see how the rest of DSTL could use it to aid their own sort of operational advantage um, and really getting people to think about how they could use it. So. We want to use it for information. You could also use it as a training facility. You could also use it as a work facility for sharing information. It's 360 degrees, so you could have up all your different Word documents at once so you can try and pull out themes and things. Um, so, it, you know, we're, we're looking at it for our, um, for our defense community and our stakeholders, not just to help us, but also to help the rest of the organization as well. Cool. Where does the handover happen between futures and, because presumably you take, you know, your ideas, you explore stuff, and then at some point that is no longer the future, it becomes something that another part of DSTL thinks about. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of our concepts and our technologies, once we've proved the basics of something, that something is viable, the idea is that it will then move off into a different area of DSTL and it will be carried on externally. Um, in terms of our tools, it's about proving that something may or may not be useful. And then we go out to the rest of defense and we say, look at this, look what we've done. Do you have any examples? Something that maybe Futures has taken through and has been handed somewhere else in DSTL? Yeah. So my favorite example at the moment is about Traveler's Diary. Um, we find that on deployments abroad, uh, you lose a certain number of days of operational effectiveness. Um, due to soldiers getting traveler's diarrhea and not being able to um, being able to participate. So there was anecdotal evidence that different communities of soldiers were finding this. This happened in different levels within different communities. And particularly the Nepalese soldiers from the Gurkha units were much less likely to get traveler's diarrhea than the British soldiers who were living in the UK. So one of the concepts that came through our program was to understand if that difference could be caused by gut microbacteria. So we did some research with an academic partner to look at whether the gut microbacteria in UK populations and Gurkha populations when based in the UK was the same or if it was different. Um, and initial research has shown that actually there is a difference in the gut bacteria when they're in the UK. And if it can be shown that that's the same when they're overseas, then we might reach a stage where actually we can understand um, how that affects populations overall. And eventually, if we can manipulate to stop um, travellers' diarrhoea from occurring within our troops and therefore keeping our troops healthier and more. And I think that's great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, really, it's, uh, it's a really interesting example because uh, the assumption is you're going to talk about you know, GPS or some mm. new technology that's going to come in or, or yeah, quantum computing, but no, yeah. gut biome and, and travellers' diarrhoea. Absolutely. It goes to show we're not just about widgets and tech. We're about all sorts. So presumably that then 
you hand that to the human performance part of BSCL is that and they they decide on the nutritional balance that might be needed for that but that's not that's, you'll be worrying about the next thing by Absolutely. the time that's handed over yeah yeah so we've uh, we've handed that over to our human performance and protection program and they will continue to investigate that and develop that further and then we'll move on to looking at something else that's new so are there any exciting things that you're looking at right now you could share with our audience um, so we have lots of exciting stuff going on at the moment. Um, we are looking at different types of camouflage. We're looking at different types of vision through barriers. We are looking at the idea of offshore floating complexes, whether you could um, get, for example, powered individuals who can create an offshore floating lab, which is then um, isn't subject to any kind of legislation because it's in international waters okay. and the implications for that and the ethics around that. So we're looking at that as well. Um, we really are covering like a really broad topic of everything from kit and equipment to concepts and all sorts. Seeing through barriers? Yes. What's that? Seeing through walls? Seeing through what, what sort of barriers? So I would need to refer you to a colleague for that oh, okay. it's not Fair my enough. area of expertise at all. But Fair enough. It's one of the cool things. We do. But I think what's interesting in those examples you just brought up, so you know, to um, you know, camouflage, I think it's something that we can all understand, probably doesn't have any ethical considerations to it, but mm -hmm. then I suppose that shows the breadth of your of your department. So camouflage, fine. Mm -hmm. But then floating offshore labs, there's all sorts of different elements to that. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so that so that's a really good example of where we are having to work with our colleagues in defence to get them to start thinking now about do we need to make legal decisions? Do we need to get people to start changing policies? Do we what do we need to do now to be prepared for that to happen in the future? If it does happen, and it might not, but it might do, and if it does, let's make sure we're prepared for it. Is there any technology that's emerged recently that has set off a whole set of work? Teleexistence is one area where we've done a lot of work recently, and that's now expanded quite broadly. Teleexistence. Teleexistence. Um, so we have recently done a. We're currently doing a lot of work with industry on teleexistence, which is the idea of being able to use remotely operate, I suppose, um, a a digital twin or a robot or a piece of kit but not just in a way that we will have done previously where you use a joystick and you you know you drive it and you look on a little screen but in a more sensory way so um using things like goggles so you get a full um a full vision from a machine and haptic gloves so you can feel things as you're as you're operating a robot you can physically feel what that robot's feeling um it's something that we started looking at um, oh, a while ago. It's been going on in the lab for a little while. And we've recently done a lot of work and we put a lot of work out to industry through DASA to explore that further. Um, and that's another example where it can offer real operational advantage to people because it will keep people safe. So things like IEDs, at the moment we have to put someone in a suit and they have to wander out and they have to defuse a bomb. If we can create a bit of kit which you can then remote remotely operate but so effectively that you can physically feel what you're doing and you can see what you're doing it means that we can keep people safe and that's what it's all about at the end yeah i think you can instantly see the sort of applications that you could have with that absolutely yeah technology i i've read anecdotal evidence of, of skype being used for you know qualified doctors to help advise people and 
point of wounding. Um, yeah. But if you could have, you know, some sort of haptic feedback for a surgeon, there's no reason why robots couldn't do that sort of Absolutely. thing. Absolutely. So things like battlefield surgery, um, anything to do with nuclear events, anything to do with CBRN events, um, the ability to not have to put someone in the field and being able to use a bit of kit instead, you know, it's groundbreaking. And of course, the the question about have you um i think it's out of the mountains maybe by david kilcullen uh so he talks about virtual theaters of war um which sounds like it sits in this bounds as well on the ethical considerations where you think you know the traditional idea of certainly in a, a soldiers and probably the public mind of where a theater of war or a conflict might sit is is the physical location mm-hmm. because if you're remotely piloting a drone from the uk suddenly is that in the theatre of war or isn't it? So there's ethical considerations around how that works. And that sounds like the sort of thing that your team would also consider with, with this, right? If you're, if you're having a presence from the UK somewhere else, like there's obviously there's legal repercussions to that sort of thing too. Yeah. So that's kind of out, a lot of that is outside the scope of what we're trying to do. Um, so that I would probably refer to some of our more uh, legal and ethical divisions that, yeah. that deal with those bits. So we, we talked about you, you sat around thinking about things that might happen and that sort of stuff, but there's already, uh, there's already people doing that all over the place. It happens all the time in science fiction. So what sort of work does DSTL do on science fiction? So we've been doing a lot of work recently exploring science fiction and the potential um, that it could bring to futures. So uh, one piece of work we've done recently, we did some collaboration with American authors, American sci-fi authors, um, Peter Singer and August Cole. Um, we gave them eight technology areas that are emerging that we're interested in. Um, they then worked with our in-house scientists, our specialist scientists, to understand what the technological implications of those topics could be and use that to build a series of short stories. So we've got eight short stories which have all been put together in a nice little volume uh, with an introduction from the CSA. Um, and they're all about trying to get our decision makers think about the implications of technology. So why do they need to make decisions about it now? And why do they need to invest in it now? And it's to help with that translation piece. So that's one example of what we've done recently. And that's my favorite. It's really what, what were the eight technologies? So we did artificial intelligence. We did human augmentation. We did digital twins, uh, drones, quantum, cyber psychology, and you're going to catch out with the last one. I can't quite remember the last one. But they're Fair really enough. interesting stories. They're really, they come across really well and they really explore these topics in a way that we probably couldn't have done without using science fiction. Where do you, um, so I suppose there must be, you know, when people are questioning you about what you're doing at Futures Down the Pub, um, that line with science, science fiction, um, yeah, where, where is the line of useful science fiction and not useful science fiction? So you're right, there is a distinction. Um, I think if you, you know, trying to come up with, uh, the trick is about coming up with plausible futures. Um, And again, that's something that we're exploring. We're going to be doing some work shortly with some external partners to look at creating plausible future scenarios, which we can then share with the rest of defense. Um, I think all you have to do is look back to the 60s when they predicted by now we'd be living on the moon and we'd all have flying cars to see that it's really easy to, to not plausible futures but actually if you can root it in the things that we know are going to happen then you can start to 
these concepts and actually aren't going to be too far off. And so that's something else that we're exploring at the moment. Build them in a way that means that they might actually be used, I, yeah. I suppose. I, I'm, I'm reminded of an example of uh, the Sinclair C5. I don't, is that something that you ever talk about here? So mm-hmm. um, Sinclair did a whole bunch of things. He made some really exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but the C5 sank his uh, sank his whole commercial enterprise, and it was essentially it was an e-bike. Yes, right? yeah, yeah. Um, but it was it was made, and e-bikes now are extremely common. Like mm-hmm. I, I got stuck behind one. A lot of people at DSDL seem to like to use them to come to work. <laughs> um, but it was too early, and there were a yeah. lot of design flaws in it, and people weren't ready for it. Essentially, at that point, even though now e-scooters e-bikes all that sort of stuff it, it, they're really common mm. uh, and he he lost millions of pounds trying you know, trying to make this thing work mm-hmm. um and he hadn't thought about how we were going to practically employ this technology and the other technologies that were around at the time yeah um so i guess that is a huge is that a, is that a, a, a interesting part of what you have to do is trying to figure out getting people to that point like yes actually this this really is useful. We can use this. I'm going to take you on a journey there to see how we might use it. Yeah, absolutely. So that's where all of those support services come in around translation and understanding about context so we can get those decision makers to think about those things now and put in place things now that we will need to be able to use something in 10, 15, 20 years' time. We're going to need this legislation in 10 years so that everyone's ready to have it in 15 years and blah, blah, blah. blah. Yeah. That is hard because you don't know what the... (laughs) The administration is going to be in 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what sort of people work on your team? Uh, we have all sorts. So we have we have lots of analysts. So they're looking through a lot of the feed and they're coming up with the interesting ideas. Um, we have a variety of sort of hard and soft scientists. So our physicists, our chemists, our biologists. Uh, we have several social scientists as well. We've got an anthropologist who's fantastic. Um, we really are a broad mix. We've got lots of people with comms experience, um, so coming at it from a slightly more creative stance because we realise that actually for futures you need to have that broad that broad experience. You can't just have your deep scientists on futures. So we really are a mixed team of... We've probably got one of anything you could mention working on the programme somewhere. That must be quite exciting working with so many people from all of these different backgrounds on on it, just it, I just I still my mind boggles at the range of different topics that you must come in to do. Yeah. Um. And does that do you uh, do you group teams together and give them a topic and then they crack on with it until it's complete or how does that work? Yeah. So at the moment we um once a once a hypothesis is being developed we'll give it to a technical lead who will be um a not necessarily a specialist in the area but someone who will understand the basics. So. If we were looking at something to do with sound, we would get someone with a background in acoustics to lead on that. And the idea is that they will then pull in the people that they need as they go through to um, to look at making battery packs smaller, to look at making speakers bigger, to get a mathematician to do a funky algorithm to make something work. So um, we're, we're trying to be as agile as we can and as flexible as we can. So. We don't have sort of rigid set teams of, you know, team A only deal with this, team B only deal with that. We try and take a more flexible approach. And do any of these the subjects, do you get given topics or is it all up to you to decide 
where your hypothesis comes from? Um, most of it is up to us, but we do also um, have a system where we will take ideas in from any other area of DSTL. So we have an internal tool, which we call the Ideas Bank, and that's open to anyone in DSTL and they can just pop in what their idea is, even if it's the most basic idea. Of, I think that this thing that we're using to scan stuff we could actually use for something completely different. I could stir my tea with it. And you yeah. could stir your tea with it. Um, and that will also come in as part of our horizon scanning fee. So our analysts will look at that and think, well, what could we do with that? Could we build? So um, yeah, so we're, we're putting in ideas internally as well as externally. Well, it sounds like a really exciting place to work with I an awful so. lot of a lot of fun science going on. And something I think is quite rare is very few boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. You know. We, we have the freedom and the flexibility to try new things. Um, it's okay if we get things wrong. It's okay if things don't work. Um, you know, we do have a sense of freedom that you don't get in many other places. Um, people talk about operational advantage all the time. And I often think that our program in a way is the operational advantage because we are thinking about things in such a different way and we are thinking so much further than the rest of defense and we're helping to prepare the rest of defense. Um, and we're also, we're just, we're really trying to promote futures as a thing that everyone could think about and really, um, really get everyone to incorporate futures thinking into their day-to-day -day work. Because if we can all start thinking about futures, then think how much we could achieve. We'll start thinking a bit. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. Don't forget to like and subscribe and we'll see you again next time on A Soldier, A Sailor and A Scientist.